You know, Vail Resorts, again, is driven with this overarching mission to drive people to their Epic Pass. The Epic Pass is their financial future. How do you get people to buy that pass? You charge them $275 to go skiing for a day. That is ridiculous. Unless there's a helicopter involved or a snowcat, there's no way that is worth it. I'm so shocked that there's like 40% of their lift revenue comes from people who walk up and buy lift tickets. Like, who is the person that is like, okay, here's my credit card for four lift tickets today for my family. You're like, wow, man, you are not paying attention. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, going high level today with the best ski reporter in the game. We'll get right to that. But first, I'm going to ask you to pop over to stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. This podcast is just a small part of the storm. The newsletter is the heart of this whole operation where I am breaking down the world of lift serve skiing all year long. Stories like this. Next week, one of the major passes is signing a major ski area. Do you know who and which pass? I do. I already have that story written and you will have that full breakdown in your inbox the moment that it is announced if you are a Storm subscriber. For more frequent updates, you can also follow the Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Here is another way to get great content. You can subscribe to Mountain Gazette. What is Mountain Gazette? Well, it's a skiing magazine, but it is also a climbing, backpacking, trekking, fishing, and running magazine. And it goes on, ranging widely in, over, and through the mountains and digging deeply into mountain subjects of all kinds. A given issue can cover everything from mountain play to mountain people, politics, culture, trends, travel, and the environment. There are also some subjects in Mountain Gazette's pages that defy categorization. There are more than a few surprises, news reviews, and many unusual side trips into the most remote corners of the world's highest places. All of them presented with a humor, freshness, vitality, and originality that have both won and lost to magazine friends, but rarely left readers feeling lukewarm about them. But don't take my word for it. Go to mountaingazette.com to lock in your subscription today. Mountain Gazette, when in doubt, go higher. Episode 98, Jason Blevins, reporter for the Colorado Sun. Yesterday, hashtag ski Twitter erupted when I posted a sentence buried in a recent subscriber email from Ski Magazine. The November 2022 issue will be their last in print form. The publication will live on digitally, but the print magazine that has been arriving reliably each fall for the past 86 years is no more. While this news was neither surprising nor particularly consequential, it is the latest sign that the legacy ski media that many of us came up with, and by that I mostly mean magazines, is gone. So, who fills the void? Who is reporting on the stories of consequence in the lift served skiing world? Well, that is obviously the mission of the storm, but what about the folks on the ground in the mountains? There are, fortunately, a lot of good ski reporters out there. One of the best, many would say the best, is Jason Blevins, who over two decades at the Denver Post 
created an unmatched high country ski beat in the mountains of Colorado. But then the post fell into the venture capital pit, or maybe that's vulture capital pit. Deprived of resources and reporters, the paper's spirit withered under the banner of an outfit called Alden Global Capital. That's when Blevins fled and, with a band of fellow post-refugees, formed the Colorado Sun, a paper owned and run by journalists with a commitment to serving the community through great reporting. Four years in, the Sun is closing in on 20,000 paid subscribers and has significantly expanded its reporting staff. It's a model that's resonating not just in Colorado, but nationally as a template for the future of community journalism. If this matters to you, and it should, then you will want to hear what Blevins has to say. Oh, and one more thing before we get started. NIMBY stands for Not In My Backyard and refers to just about everyone who opposes a new development based upon often nebulous quality of life concerns. This will come up a lot in this conversation, and I am aware that it is a term that not all of you may be familiar with. All right, let's do it. My guest today is a reporter at the Colorado Sun. He helped to co-found the paper in 2018 after 21 years at the Denver Post. He writes about the ski industry, adventure and action sports, mountain culture, tourism, and live music. He has reported from two Winter Olympics. Jason Blevins is my guest. Jason, so good to finally connect. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Stuart. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. How was your summer, first of all? Did you have time to get outside and enjoy that mountain lifestyle a little bit? Oh, yeah. Always. The joy of living on the Western Slope out here. I live in Eagle, Colorado. Um, we can ride our bikes right from the uh, driveway. We've got the Colorado River just a few minutes down the road. So we do a lot of paddling and kayaking, stand-up paddling. I've um, been camping a lot and, yeah, trying to get out every day. That's the hope, at least. Do you stick to Colorado or, or do you tend to venture out a little bit, explore a little bit more of the Mountain West or even points beyond in the summer? Tend to stay up high in the summer here in the mountains. We do in the spring and fall get down to, you know, San Rafael Swell, Canyonlands kind of stuff in the desert out there. Tend to stay in the high country for the summers though. Yeah. And mostly Colorado, just like a lot of my coverage too. I tend to stick pretty close to Colorado for a lot of my reporting and coverage, kind of working that expertise and, uh, the Western Slope and kind of the mountain, mountain West here in Colorado. So anyone who's followed you closely over the years knows that you are the preeminent voice of skiing winter sports in Colorado, but you're actually not from there. How, where did you grow up, Jason? And how did you come to skiing? <laughs> I grew up in Texas. Um, small, wow. It was a small community north of Houston called the Woodlands. And apparently, from what I gather, that is no longer a small community. Um, haven't <laughs> been back since uh, the late 80s. But um, oh, wow. yeah, I, I moved to Vail, Colorado in 1992, ski bum. Spent a few winters there uh, skiing as much as I could. Called it my postgraduate studies. Um, and <laughs> yeah, and then have never left. So I've been kind of living in Colorado since, uh, yeah, 1992. How old were you when you first skied? Would you take family ski trips up from Texas or did you discover it when you moved to Colorado? Oh yeah. No, we, we'd ski all the time, every, you know, twice a year on for vacations. And then, um, I went to elementary school in Alaska and we had, oh, wow. uh, my dad was in an oil and gas business. So, uh, we had a 
a little rope tow in the back of the school. So we would ski, we skied all the time. I skied since I could walk. So, but you know, for those first, whatever, 20 years, it was vacation skiing. So it's a little different than, I don't know, kind of living up closer, closer to the mountains where you can go pretty regularly. So, um, yeah, definitely started getting more, I don't know, more regular skiing in when I moved here 50, 60 days a year. And where would you go when you were a kid? Would you go up to New Mexico, Colorado? What were the family vacation spots? Always Colorado. Yep. Uh, Breckenridge, Winter Park, Keystone, um, you know, sort of like that upper middle class destination, not necessarily rolling, you know, Aspen style or, or Vale style, but, you know, getting with a bunch of families, um, going with the church group kind of thing. Uh, you know, stay, staying in, you know, condos and packing families into condos and things like that. Um, we definitely, definitely love Colorado. And that was our spot. We go up to Utah every once in a while, but we certainly were big fans of uh, Summit County and, and Winter Park. That was kind of our top destination. And as a kid skiing on those family trips, did skiing get into your head? Is that what drove you to then go up to college in Colorado, do the ski bum thing? Or, or was that just, you went to college up there and the ski bum was an outgrowth. How, how did that go? How did you end up in the skiing lifestyle? Well, I went to college in Texas, um, small university north of Austin called Southwestern. Uh, it was a super great school. And every summer we would load up as soon as classes were over and we'd go spend time in the mountains um, and work. We'd live in the back of our trucks, camp, um, mostly around Jackson Hole and work at different spots with different restaurants in, in the town and then go back to school in Texas. Um, as soon as I graduated, I knew I needed to be out West and just sort of went to Jackson, chased a girl to Vail, ended up in Vail. And while I loved to ski and, you know, it was obviously great fun and loved it. I hadn't really had the, you know, all consuming bug, but those first winters in Vail where, you know, I, I kind of recognize, okay, this is your job. I got a job at night at a restaurant and I skied all day, every day, um, you know, 120, 130 days a year for those first few seasons. And it was, you know, that was when I realized this was something I want to do for the rest of my life and pretty much have just raising two teenage daughters. They're expert skiers here in um, Eagle River Valley and they're on the ski team local high school ski team and we just we love it it's what we do we are sort of skiers it's kind of you ask my kids what they do that's the first thing they say <laughs> so take us back to the early 90s in Vail, jason what was Vail like Vail mountain and the town of Vail in the early 90s that was fun that was um yeah so i moved there in 92 and you know it was, it was different but not that different you know, it was maybe a little more affordable than it is now. Um, you know, they were all saying, oh, it's really hard for ski bums, but we found a condo and um, my buddies were, were packed into this condo and I went over to visit them and they had uh, they had a, a laundry room down in the garage that they didn't have. They moved the laundry actually up upstairs. So there was like, it was like a storage closet in the garage. And I thought, this is my spot, boys. So, <laughs> uh, that's where I lived for three years in this hole in the garage, trying to little door wouldn't even open all the way because it would hit the bed that was on the floor in this <laughs> garage closet. But uh, when I, I had my own room in Vail, Colorado 
for like 150 <laughs> bucks a month. So I was doing pretty well. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was good times. I mean, that was, you know, it was sort of the heyday for ski bumming. You know, we weren't spending $1,500 each, you know, to, to live. So work was, while it was important, it wasn't, you know, necessary. So you could, I made do for those first three, four years in Vail on, I think $10,000 a year sort of thing in total wow. earnings. Um, yeah, we would go chase music all summer, um, still work, you know, restaurants as much as we could. And it was, uh, it was definitely a, an eye-opening experience. You know, I learned to whitewater kayak. I learned to ski, learned to backcountry ski, kind of, you know, did all the things that I really rely on the skills and truly the friendships that I built in Vail. pretty funny. All the, I still hang with that crew that, that I was living with in 1992, <laughs> which is pretty funny when you consider it, but just, it was a special time really kind of changed, changed the direction of my life. I was planning to go to law school and taking the LSAT and was ready to go. And, um, had that very awkward conversation with my parents that I was not going to be going to law school and I was going to remain a ski bum and hopefully find future use for their wonderful private college education they provided me. So, um, it all worked out in the end. And, you know, I, I can say that my years unveiled there were postgraduate ski bumming, um, that really taught me a lot, um, exposed me to, you know, the mountain life culture and things that I'm, I still embrace and hold very close. So you didn't end up in law school. You did end up working for the Denver post. How did you come into the job at the Denver post and what was your experience writing leading up to that job? Uh, none. I had no experience <laughs> at all. I uh, got accepted into this graduate program at CU Boulder, um, journalism program. And the first semester, they got me an internship um, and the internships with the Denver Post. I went and I remember this interview with the with the editor, managing editor of the paper at the time. His name was Frank Scandale. And I did. We went to lunch and, you know, I, I had nothing. I'd never been published, <laughs> never, never worked in a newspaper. First time I'd walked into a newsroom was to meet him that morning. Um, and I just, whatever, wowed him with, I just finished a six month stint backpacking through South America. And I had some pretty interesting stories to tell and was just wowed him with some stories. And he's like, whatever, I'm going to take a chance on you, Blevins. And he, he hired me for an internship. And it was an, it was an interesting time in the newsrooms of really across the country at that time in 1997, the uh, internet was exploding, you know, and all these new internet companies were opening up news companies and they were offering reporters you know, six figures to jump out. Wow. And so there's transition a, in these newsrooms. And, you know, I just found my calling. I had, you know, ponytail down in my butt and had never mm -hmm. had a job outside of a kitchen. And, you know, really I, I recognize that this, was my shot and um i took it and i like tell people i sort of snuck in the back door at the denver post but ended up spending <laughs> 21 years there um it was uh, again a uh, sort of a life-changing experience and and i i look back very fondly on on those years at the denver post incredible time you know you really found your niche there too jason when you left the post in 2018, you told Powder Magazine that you, quote, invented that beat, meaning the ski beat that you were covering for the post. What did the post ski coverage look like when you arrived and how did you change that? I realized, and the same with tourism, um, we didn't really 
cover this stuff from like a business perspective, from a cultural perspective. We we covered skiing. We have a ski writer, truly one of the greatest ski writers in the history of newspapers. His name was Charlie Myers and indeed one of the best in the world. But he approached it from a different angle and that he would go to a ski area and be like, here's this new new lift and here's this new terrain. And he didn't cover the business of the resort industry as closely as the experience of resorts, which is cool. And that's, you know, it, it, it's the way every newspaper covered skiing. Um, I proposed covering it more closely as a business. And that, that was a, a really intense time. Uh, you know, we were seeing... Vail Resorts had just gone public. Um, you know, they just moved from Ross and Farina to Vail Resorts. Um, starting to see, you know, the first glimmer of consolidation in the industry right then. Uh, you know, a publicly traded company. Uh, so it, it was really a pivotal time in the resort industry and really tourism and really recreation. Um, outdoor recreation was this thing that ski bums did. And it's what you did on the weekends. It wasn't a business. It wasn't an industry. It wasn't something that you could anchor an entire, you know, region's economy on. Um, obviously, we know now that's changed. But at the Denver Post, we saw that sort of emergence of this really prominent, powerful light um, that that could diversify these, these economies. Um, and, you know, it's not just tourism. It's outdoor recreation. So I thought, hey, let's cover this industry as a business let's cover it like it's you know like it's a powerful economic engine that it is and it was one of the first kind of angles and it was, it was fun you know i truly did it because i wanted to go skiing <laughs> you know i've always <laughs> said i was a skier and i'm like how can i get up there and do you know write about this stuff and not just be fluffy here's a new dining area at a ski area here's the new chairlift oh this new you know, I wanted something a little more meaty than that. So, you know, we we sort of carved out this beat. It started out in business, moved it over to sports, but kind of covered it as an industry and as an economic engine versus um, the experiential coverage that had that had preceded, which was awesome and truly fantastic. Charlie Myers, you know, really started focusing more on the hook and bullet, hunting and fishing stuff. And, you know, that sort of left room in that beat to kind of start covering things, you know, as an industry, Bell Resorts was maturing. It was, it was just a fascinating time for the entire industry. And it was a cool time to be there in the front row. And like I said, kind of carved that beat and kept that beat here at the Colorado Sunville when, when we left. And how did the industry react to that? Vail Resorts going back to the late 90s, did they get what you were trying to do? Because working with Vail now and Altera, I find they have very sophisticated PR operations. They're very easy to work with. They understand the value of journalism and PR and getting the word out. Was that the case with IntraWest, with Vail back in the day? Or did you have to work to, to help them understand, I'm trying to help you tell your story here. I'm trying to to explain what's going on, these trends that are changing the mountain communities. Was that a... Was that a hard transition or did they get it right away? They did not get it. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I still wouldn't say they do. <laughs> um, you know, there's, they, they really would like to have reporters writing fluffy stories about fresh snowfall and new hamburger prices and, you know, new 
dining options and things like that. That's what they really want um, more mm-hmm. than, you know, a reporter digging into the 10 Ks every, every you know, quarter. So ideally, you know, Interwest was really into real estate. They wanted me to cover that real estate stuff really closely. They wanted me to write about how villages are awesome um, and all the things that Interwest was doing. Whereas, uh, you know, we, we tried to track it more of a, as a business and it turned into covering the implosion of, of companies as, as that the whole thing fell apart with American skiing and Interwest Corp watching the, you know, reliance on real estate blow up and, and Vail Resorts, you know, backpedal vigorously away from real estate sales and focus more on Epic Pass sales. So, you know, it has been, it, there's a lot to cover and it is a meaty beat. I, I wouldn't say that, uh, companies are stoked on me. I wouldn't say that they, you know, dislike me. Um, I'm just sort of there and I, I write about things that they don't necessarily always love to see out there and, you know, <laughs> written about, but it's, you know, it's just sort of the nature of the beat. All right. So there's a lot to say about skiing and I want to come back to skiing in a minute, but first I just want to zoom out here, Jason. I want to look at the post as a newsroom when you arrived. Just help us understand what did it look like? How many people were in the newsroom? It sounded like you had the latitude to come in and create a beat. I don't think that anyone in a, a, a modern newsroom at a mainstream no. paper is getting that latitude now. So what did it look like when you arrived in 97 and how did the post newsroom evolve over time? Yeah, those late 90s, early 2000s, God, it was just the heydays of journalism. Our ad revenue was up. You know, we were tracking towards 300 something reporters in that newsroom. I mean, we had wow. micro beats. We had two people covering, you know, outdoor recreation and we would alternate and we were traveling all over the state, really spending time on stories. I mean, it was just beautiful. It was the most wonderful <laughs> time ever. And we look back on it now and wish we'd realized we knew we had it good, but we didn't know just how good we would have because it was the, what would begin to be a massive downhill slide starting with the really explosion of Craigslist taking away our ad revenue to the birth of uh, you know growth of online ad- advertising, which was infinitely cheaper than print advertising. Subsequent you know financial struggles of newspapers, well documented, um, that ended up with you know the largest owner of newspapers being just the worst humans on the planet. A hedge fund out of New York called Alden Capital, and they are just terrible, terrible people. And, you know, just have zero appreciation for the community value of newspapers. And they remain just villains, just vultures. They are not kidding. Horrible humans. I can't even understand how they sleep at night. Um, They just, they're burning down journalism so they could buy empty mansions in Palm Springs. And they literally have 12 to 15 mansions in Florida. And that's what they do with their money while they burn down newspapers. It's unconscionable and they are truly despicable human beings. And that was eventually reached a point where, you know, I'm 21 years in, I'm busting my ass like I always do. And I just, one day I woke up, I'm like, wow, I cannot believe I'm working this hard for such assholes. Like, it's just, it, I just could not balance it. I loved the newsroom. I loved my editors. I loved the people I worked with. We were down to 40 something reporters, you know, from nearly 300. They had just come back and said, we're going to, we need you to fire 10 more people out of your newsroom. And I was just like, this is 
this is not cool. I cannot balance how hard I'm working and my appreciation for this job with these just asshat owners, like just terrible people. So I, I left. I just made a big splash, called them a bunch of names on Twitter. Still call them names anytime I can. They're not good <laughs> for, for anything in journalism. And they're truly villainous. And what their role, they're having, the impact they're having on community-based local news is irreversible and so damaging to our culture. And I directly relate the divisiveness and the uninformed situation that we have in politics in America right now to Alden Capital. <laughs> you know, this, they, they are the reason that we're, we're having news deserts and people are so um, uninformed and we're losing our sense of community in a lot of these um, small places. It's because they burned down newspapers. Mm-hmm. that's a whole other story um so yes i had i left big splash and that's uh we we eventually got 10 of us from the denver post to leave the 10 top reporters at that paper and we created the colorado sun as a new model as journalist owned um reader driven um news which um we're just celebrating four years now so it's working well, congratulations on that. Let's let's talk about that. So I'd imagine that you had a lot of strong emotions when you decided to resign <laughs> after 21 years. Six months later, the sun comes out. Tell us about that six months in between. How did the idea for the Colorado Sun come together and what was its mission? Yeah, so we had 10 people and they all shared the same thoughts. Like I, I'm really struggling to balance how hard I'm working with you know, these people just siphoning every bit of profit to cover their ridiculous bets on shoe chains and all, I don't know, just they're idiots. So, you know, and they were selling off real estate. The newsroom had been moved to the a corner of the printing plant in unincorporated Adams County. And, you know, we weren't even in Denver. It was just terrible. So it wasn't hard to get the motivation in the newsroom. We found um, a great investor who's like saw his blockchain guy and he gave us, you know, some money to, to kind of launch. And his idea was that he was news was going to move into this blockchain, um, you know, sort of thing that could last forever versus, um, you know, the day the Rocky Mountain news went dark, the, the entire database and all Rocky Mountain news articles went away, which was wow. a, a terrible blow. Like, truly one of the biggest blows in all of journalism. So we're trying to create something that would last, you know, and, and, and maybe carry on. And the idea was that he could move news onto the blockchain and blockchain would be like a library of news. And then, you know, the, the, our whole idea was that we would rely on um, subscribers. Uh, you know, we started out at five bucks a month. I think we're up to like six bucks a month now. And everything's free at the Colorado Sun. You can click over there and read. You don't have to pay to see our content. That was one of our main premises. But we hope that you recognize the value of news. And, and that was really, we were hoping when we arrived that we came to the American culture at a time when people said, wow, you know, I, I have been getting my news just randomly free on Facebook and wherever on the internet, news is free. But I'm starting to realize now that actually true local journalism costs money. Like we've got to pay for it. I got to give these reporters on the ground some money so that they can go out and drive around the state, find these stories, spend time 
you know, doing that stuff. And that was the whole idea that we would arrive at this time when people recognize the value of community journalism, local journalism, and be willing to give us five bucks a month. And that has turned out to work pretty well. Coming up on 20,000 subscribers now, working towards financial sustainability. We have a, a longer term plan, obviously, to be completely financially sustainable. We're very close to it right now. Um, we are uh, up to 25, 26 reporters, some administrative staff. So we're doing well. Um, and, you know, and the idea is that, uh, again, local journalism, every dollar that goes to, you know, from that we collect from subscribers goes to journalism. No one's getting rich. No one's buying mansions. There is no hedge fund. This is all us. We don't have an office. Um, the only assets we have are computers and we just move around the state and write stories. It's been an incredible journey. It's been heartwarming to see readers respond and, and appreciate what we're doing. And, you know, we're quickly emerging as sort of the largest um, newsroom in Colorado with the, uh, you know, sort of the long form narrative, deep dive journalism that, uh, that people want and we like to think they need. As you look around the country, Alden Capital, as you said, largest newspaper owner, they're replicating their destruction of the Denver Post everywhere. Is the model everywhere. that you've created with the Sun replicable across America? Are, are, have you established something that could be mimicked? And, and are people coming to you and saying, hey, they're killing our paper in, I don't know, Cleveland, wherever. Can you help yeah. us? you know, copy your model and apply it to Ohio or Indiana or New England or wherever it needs to be. Yep. Every day, all day. Um, we have, you know, complete transparency. We work with other journalism outfits as they start something like this, much as the Texas Tribune worked with us as we got launched. This is a model that was kind of, uh, Texas Tribune is a little different and, you know, some nuanced ways, but, you know, ideally they, they're the most authoritative journalism outlet. And, all of Texas, and uh, that, that was something that we wanted to be, and it's something that we're trying to be. Some nuanced differences there, but we're doing the same for countless other, dozens of other news outlets around the country, helping them line up uh, You know that initial funding boost, helping them create their newsrooms, offering them whatever tips, strategies, hacks that we learned along the way, ways to really grow that newsroom organically um, and really remain tightly and diligently focused on local journalism and reader-driven news and meeting that demand on the ground there. So yes, we are happily working with many different outlets to help them see newsrooms like the Colorado Sun across the country. Have you seen more success stories or anyone you can point to that's doing it right? Texas Tribune, there's, uh, what's it, the Santa Cruz. Yeah, there are a number and they're all kind of emerging right now. So it is happening. What is the Santa Cruz news outlet? Uh, we work so closely <laughs> with it. I should remember it. Um, yeah, Lookout. Yeah, so it's called the Lookout. And there's um, other types of Lookout type news. Um, again, it's local news organizations created by, you know, reporters on the ground there in in those communities. So there are m many other, um, Chicago's got great ones. Um, New York has great ones, uh, local sort of news websites that are really thriving. Again, taking advantage of that sort of national recognition that, hey, we need robust 
local news and I'm willing to pay for it. Largely digital only kind of products, but you know, that like Colorado Sun, we offer all our content to every print newspaper in the state for free. Mm -hmm. Um, You have Mm -hmm. a print newspaper, you can take any Colorado Sun story, run it anywhere. So on any given day, we're in 20 plus newspapers around the state of Colorado. So it's worked out really well for us doing that. Drives folks to the website. Um, Again, we're not click driven. You know, we don't necessarily look at our analytics the way Alden did and said, oh my gosh, people love whatever kitten videos or whatever people freaking like but that's not what drives us you know we we focus on important community news things that that kind of people need to know and that bring us all together local news have you stayed plugged in with the post how are things going over there at the denver post have they responded at all as the colorado sun has has risen and by responded i mean changed their course at all or is that still is that thing still on a downhill slide they can't, they don't have the power to change their course because of that ownership group. That's the saddest thing. I mean, they are turning out great journalism. They are incredibly gifted reporters at that site. I, I can never say anything bad about the Denver Post. They're, it's a beautiful news outlet, historic it's legacy news. Um, but I curse their owners till the day I die. Those people should not be in the news business and they're impact on journalism is huge and it will be a a pain that we will feel across the country forever and very soon the entire world will recognize the villainous horribleness of Alden Capital and their two principles. What they've done to journalism is unforgivable. It sounds like though they gave you an opportunity to show the world a different way. And, and you've been able to reinvent what a local paper looks like. And I'd imagine you also had the chance, Jason, to reinvent yourself as you pulled yourself out of the post and, and I guess determined your own destiny a little bit, I would imagine. So just personally, looking at your own work, your own writing, how has it grown and evolved since you've come to the sun over the past four years? We mentioned we were talking a little bit before, and you mentioned you don't cover the X Games anymore or that particular beat. So just... Playing off that a little bit, how has your work grown, evolved, changed over the last four years? Yeah, I was, you know, doing a lot of sports work over at uh, at the Denver Post. You know, I called myself the world's worst sports reporter because I'd go travel <laughs> around and like meet other sports reporters at sporting events. And you know, whereas you know, I could identify the grab and a left twelve sixty, I could not tell you who's the quarterback of the. Broncos, right? I just okay. I didn't pay attention to that stuff. But I'm a sports reporter, right? So I'd go out and they'd be like telling me all these names about I don't know some sports ball stuff, and I would just be <laughs> clueless. And they would leave thinking that the Denver Post was just ridiculous <laughs> to have this complete idiot somehow on their staff that couldn't even tell you I don't know John Elway. That's like a guy's mm-hmm. name that's in sports, and that's all that I knew. I never. I just didn't follow that stuff. But, right. you know, I knew the action sports. And I knew that sort of snow sports. So I did a couple Olympics, you know, Russia and Korea and things like that. And really enjoyed that. But um, that is something we don't do at the Denver Post or at Colorado Sun. We kind of chose not to play that sports game. That's not necessarily either anybody's expertise. And we chose by very much, you know, conscious decision not to necessarily compete with, you know, sports outlets. Um, that's something that the athletic is doing really well. 
you know, they, they've kind of picked up on that, you know, giant hole in local sports coverage and, you know, are able to really capitalize on that. So in many ways, as traditional newspapers have retracted, you know, under crazy owners and economic forces, that has opened up opportunities for kind of this long form journalism type thing to where we're not necessarily worried about length. We're I'm willing to spend more time on stories. So it's one of the nice things. I got a newsletter I put out once a week called The Outsider and that it's been full-time job. So that's, I feel like I've created a closer, maybe more intimate relationship with readers than I had at the Denver Post. A lot of, say, the response you get at the Denver Post with comments underneath an article. We do not have that at the Colorado Sun. (laughs) And the comments underneath an article rarely tended to have anything to do with the article. They're just <laughs> crazy anonymous people saying craziest things because they found a trumpet that would amplify oh. their craziness. Um, so it was often disheartening to read the comments right. underneath the story. But at the same time, I, I feel like the Color Sun, because it's, you know, people are consciously supporting us. We have a better relationship with our readers. I think, I, you know, I'm more responsive to the readers. Readers suggest ideas. I have real great emails from readers all the time, way more than I got at Denver Post and people asking me, hey, could you look into this? What's up with this? Here's a great story, this kind of thing. So I feel like we're more responsive, more uh, connected to to readers. And that's something that I always tried to be as a journalist and uh, and you as a, as a podcaster. Like mm-hmm. you can't ever forget, I tell us the young journalists all the time, don't forget your readers. Like you'll get lost in, you know, those sources in the corner office at Novell Resorts. I'm like, oh, I don't want to piss off cats or, you know, but that's a terrible <laughs> way to think. Like you, right. you need to think about your readers. And that is why you are here. You they, you might piss them off, you know, those sources and everything, and you probably will. And that's part of the gig. But, you know, you stay loyal to the people who are reading you and the people who are subscribing to you. And, you know, you stay true to journalism and give them clear, concise, you know, or, or expansive um, (laughs) glimpses into, uh, you know, complex issues. And that's what, you know, you try to do and you don't necessarily be beholden to sources, but you are intimately connected to your readers and don't ever forget them. And that's kind of, if I could say anything about what's happened in the past four years under the Colorado Sun is that my relationship with readers has improved. And, you know, I just, I try to be very responsive to them and make sure that we are meeting the needs of our readers. Okay, very quick break for you here, then back to Blevins. I know the mid-show ads are new for the storm, but I've got an awesome deal for you. Snowbound Expo is coming. After two years dormant, the former Boston Ski Show has been purchased by Raccoon Events and renamed Snowbound Expo. The show will offer a huge speaker lineup that includes Bode Miller, Conrad Anker, Dan Egan, Vasu Sujitra, Danny Reyes Acosta, Lindsay Fixmer, and more. You will also find sales on the latest gear, apparel, and resort passes. And you can try a dry ski slope and kick back with friends at the Opry Ski Mountain Bar. The show is November 18th to 20th at Boston Heinz Convention Center. Tickets are normally $15 per day, but Snowbound Expo is offering Storm listeners free tickets for the entire weekend. To claim your tickets, visit snowboundexpo.com and use Storm at checkout. 
I will be there doing a live podcast and I hope to meet you in person. I want to talk about a couple of issues in particular that are of interest to the listeners of this podcast, getting back to the listeners and, and, and their focus on the ski world. I want to start with traffic here, Jason, and, and I-70 and this sort of tangle of problems around it. And, and I want to start just by going back again, late 90s. What did I-70 look like when you first started this beat? And how has that highway and the way people use it evolved over the past 25 years? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously the numbers show, pure traffic numbers show that um, since 2008, which was the arrival of the Epic Pass, mm-hmm. um, we have seen increased traffic through the tunnels at the top of I-70, Eisenhower-Johnson tunnels, which are pretty good ways to count traffic on that highway. So we've seen an increase in traffic that is greater than the increase in the population of the Front Range. So more people are going skiing, more people have these passes, more people are choosing to go not necessarily on a Friday night and come back on a Sunday night. Uh, you know, while those are still very busy days, it's, you know, just as busy as on any powder day. So we've seen sort of a shift in how people ski, how often people ski. But one thing that's sort of lost in a lot of these conversations is you go back and you ski with the OGs and you load up on a chair and, you know, on a busy Tuesday, right? And there's a 12 inch fresh at Vail Mountain. It's Tuesday morning. Frontage Road's packed at 9 a.m. You sit down on the chair. And the OG's like, damn, Epic Pass, look at what this place has done. All these front rangers coming in. And then you you say, well, what are, what are you kind of comparing it to? And they're like, oh, you know, 92 was never like this. And you're like, okay, well, 92, there was 26,000 people living in Eagle County. There's mm-hmm. close to 60,000 people living in Eagle County right now. And you know what we like to do? We like ski powder. And it doesn't matter if it's a Saturday or a Tuesday. We are coming skiing. So a lot of those people that you see crowding your resort and when you're screaming about the Epic Pass, they're actually your neighbors. They're actually the population in your county. You have seen incredible growth in these mountain valleys. And you know when you see it really firsthand on a powder day in February, doesn't matter what day it is. If it's a Saturday, then you definitely have a lot of the front range, you know, traffic on there. But it's just proof that when parking is full by 9 a.m. on a powder day and weekday powder day in February, your locals are going skiing. And there are two X as many locals as when you remember, you know. So the lift lines are, are sure, we, we have lift lines. But you also got to remember – we had lift lines when I was a kid and we would come ski at Breckenridge. We would wait in line for hours <laughs> every day. Every time we skied. I mean, think about it. They're big crowds on a fixed grip double. You know, we so mm-hmm. so we're moving skiers faster now, but those lines that you see that, you know, people love to take picture of, you know, maybe that chairlift stopped for five minutes so they could load up a, a sled for a somebody who needed blew their knee or maybe there's a mechanical or something those lift lines never last like that all day they're gone in a second um you know gone in a pretty much a snap so yeah we have lines and that makes crazy good you know social media anger and headlines 
but they tend to not last. Ski resorts are moving people around really well right now. And the whole anger at urban out of town visitors, I think is largely misplaced. Um, and if you counted cars driving out of Vail after a powder day, most are heading west. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of locals down valley, and I'm one of them. You know, living eagle, gypsum, Avon Edwards, you know, places have grown a lot in the past 10, 15, 20 years. So there's a lot of a lot of people in these communities that are going skiing. And we saw that in spades in the during the pandemic when a lot of second homeowners moved into their homes as you would expect them to. Why would right. you not want to come stay in this beautiful mountain community during a pandemic when your other option is, I don't know, Manhattan or Chicago or Dallas? Mm -hmm. Like, of course you're going to want to come stay in your house, um, <laughs> put your kids in school and all that. So you can't blame them. You know, we just had this truly a once in a lifetime kind of event that skewed everything. And it really really grew us, you know, surged our numbers and, and we felt that pressure. A lot of second homeowners, a lot of, you know, those lift lines that would show up every once in a while. You know, we've seen a, a big jump in in traffic to, to record levels. I think a lot of that is our locals, um, people in these valleys that are skiing more often. That's evidenced by incredible growth midweek. Um, you're still seeing that some midweek days in Summit County are busier than Saturdays and Sundays this summer and in the winter. So you're seeing this sort of shift how the Epic Pass changed how we ski. You know, I, if I was buying lift tickets, I would not ski the way I ski now because I typically go tuck out after lunch and go ski for two, three hours in the afternoon, get back, you know, work into the early evening. Um, you know, it's sort of thing that allows me to happen because I have a ski pass. So it's just a different way that we're moving around. And there's significant irony in that this is exactly what these mountain communities have been working for and striving for for 20 years. They say, wow, we need to grow our midweek traffic. Wow, we need more residents to move here and set up businesses. We need more people to come and support our economy and who aren't necessarily tourists. And that's exactly what happened in the past two years. It just that it happened at a pace that significantly outpaced any sort of projections, you know, like talking to folks up in Steamboat, they have been hyper aggressive about luring new businesses, getting new residents and growing their midweek business. They hit all those three of those goals that were like set for 2030, you know, like by 2030, we should have this and this and this, and they did it in a year. So mm -hmm. that, that hurts, right? That's shocking. Mm -hmm. It's a shocking pace of growth. We've yet to see if it's sustainable. I am thinking it's not um, that, you know, we're not going to continue to see that kind of growth in traffic. These city folks will eventually return to the city. But I, I think we've seen tremendous amount of growth in the past couple of years. It's something that we've all looked for. And I think the smart communities are the ones that are saying, hey, you know, let's not turn it off. Let's not reject this growth. Let's figure out how we can accommodate it because this is something that we've actually wanted. We have, you know, stronger midweek business. Um, we're seeing, it was ugly there for a little while. No doubt about it. Last summer was brutal as we saw a housing crisis and a labor crisis and this whip back of pandemic lockdown to people wanting to come to the mountains for vacations. You know, it was a perfect storm 
But as we've seen this summer, much smaller crowds, people still spending a crap ton of money to come up here on holiday. So they're in many ways, it's the perfect scenario now. There's not pretty last year, but this year, <laughs> smaller crowds, you know, more people spending money during the week and, you know, busy weekdays, you know, people setting up businesses, people coming here saying, oh, this is beautiful. I'm going to move my, you know, small business to, you know, these small towns and set up software companies and finance companies and all these different things. So it's really, it's changing the culture of these mountain towns. Yes, very painful process, but in many ways, it's, it's what these communities have wanted as they've sort of recognized, wow, you know, we don't want to be, you know, a community of $20 an hour tourist dependent workers, you know, that are just doing nothing but serving visitors. We want robust small businesses. We want other people to move here and help support, you know, our economies to where we don't necessarily have to rely purely on tourists. And in many ways that's happened. And I think it's, it's been a, a bit of a tough transition, but the smart communities out here in Colorado, at least are recognizing the value of these new residents, of this new traffic pattern, of this new kind of growth and interest in, in mountain life. And, you know, they're building as many affordable homes as they can and, and accommodating um, this as, as people spend all this crazy money on homes. But it's been an interesting transition. And while it was super painful in those past two years, the smart communities are not necessarily making permanent and lifelong changes on the weirdest two years of our lives, right? <laughs> um, There's so, so odd. Nothing like that hopefully will ever happen again. But the smart communities are saying, okay, we don't necessarily need to think that what happened in the summer of 2021 is a new normal. And if we don't react quickly and decisively with some huge thing, you know, it'll always be that way. I think we saw this summer that it's not going to always be that way starting to return to more normal traffic patterns and growth patterns. And, you know, the ski industry is, they'll be smart to find a way to capitalize on this growth because that's exactly what they've been looking for. That midweek traveler, that second homeowner coming and spending more time. These are the folks that support these mountain towns and really keep things rolling and you want them and you will miss them terribly if you drive them away. So, so that's one element of it, Jason, is these second homeowners yeah, coming in, setting up shop. Another big change that has corresponded with that started pre-pandemic is the rise of short-term rentals, which has really taken sure. a lot of housing stock out of what was traditionally thought of as, or, or at least operated as worker housing. So Colorado, zooming out, has some of the most iconic mountain towns in skiing. Aspen, Telluride, Breckenridge, Crested Butte, Steamboat. Is anyone getting the mix right? as they approach this big basket of problems that you just alluded to, are, are, are each of them getting some pieces right? Is there a big solution out there? What are your thoughts on, as you look at this landscape across Colorado and how these different communities are reacting, who's doing it right? And, and what could other towns learn from that? You know, Colorado is just this really interesting laboratory of different strategies and techniques for dealing with this housing crisis and this labor crisis. You know, we've seen past two years, housing prices in the eight busiest mountain communities in Colorado have doubled. That's incredible. It's just incredible. So that has had 
just a huge impact. And when people are spending 2X on a home, you know, and, and they're hoping to pay that mortgage, they're either incredibly wealthy or they need a revenue stream. So that's what we've seen. The prices are 2X, you're coming in, they say, wow, the only way I can pay this mortgage is if I rent on weekends to visitors, short-term rentals. And these communities that have just really kind of slowly recovered from the Great Recession a decade ago have not been building a lot of affordable housing and they have not been building hotels. So you got, there's two things, a big decline in new home construction and a pretty much stalled out building of commercial properties and hotels. Combine that with a still vibrant tourism machine that is calling all any and all visitors to these mountain communities. It is no surprise at all that we are seeing more visitors occupying homes. Short-term rental boom has transformed how people vacation. And I don't know about you, but when I go visit somewhere, I sure do like to stay in a house more than a hotel. Um, yep. <laughs> bring the dogs, stay with the families, and cook meals. It's just—I mean—it's the better way to travel. So again, not surprising to see that happen. But you know, as these folks in these small towns realize, wow, we have severely undercut our new home construction in the past decade. Wow, we haven't had new hotel come online in 15 years. What can we do to help offset these housing prices that are pinching, you know, the supply of homes for our locals? Um, and that's that's yanking on STR levels levers, and that's what they're doing in any and all fashions with increased taxes and caps and limits and cash money for short-term renters, owners who rent to locals, um, all sorts of programs. And we'll see even more um, in November. You know, probably a dozen different communities voting on different ways to corral, control, limit, cap, increase taxation on short-term rentals. Um, the sort of unbridled growth of short-term rentals in the past decade in Colorado is coming to an end, um, rightfully so. I, I think you know, I think it's you know it's been largely kind of unregulated, but you know, at the same time, the situation for the growth of short-term rentals was created in these communities. There was a lack of affordable housing being built. There's a lack of hotels. So when you combine that, this should have been predictable. But again, the growth of, you know, during the pandemic, when everybody just went batshit crazy to buy a house, it looked a lot like that super crazy time in 07, 08, when people up here were just buying homes like crazy. But that was with funny money and weird lending and mortgage issues that you know were national that eventually led to the collapse so while i see probably some sort of plateau and and pricing and things that it's starting to happen already i, I doubt we're going to see a bubble collapse like we did in 0910 here in the high country but yeah short-term rentals have without a doubt changed how we house locals but you know here's like i did some digging into the census and so between 2000 and 2010 these eight counties, Chafee, Eagle, Grand, Gunnison, Pick and Route, San Miguel, and Summit counties, they added 33,298 new housing units. I'll say that again. The decade between 2000 and 2010, the eight high country counties in Colorado added 33,298 new housing units. Great Recession came at the end of that decade. And those eight counties between 2000 and 2020, added 5,760 new homes. 
That is a decline of 27,538 new homes built between 2010, 2020, when compared to 2000 to 2010. So I hope, I don't know if that's hard to convey in podcast radio talk, but that's a big drop. Again, it's a really big drop. So there is a significant decline in new home construction in the high country in the last decade. And that is where the cause of the, the housing crisis is coming. That and the doubling of home prices in these eight counties in the past you know, two years. So those two things are, you, you can't fix those problems you know, in, a, in a city council meeting or even in a year. Those are, those are long-term issues that are going to be haunting these communities for a long time. So you're seeing communities buying hotels and putting, you're retrofitting hotels to accommodate workers, but they don't even have enough hotels, which is the source of the problem. You know, so we're seeing, it's just, it's interesting, you know, like I saw a bumper sticker in Slido the other day. Welcome to Slido where the locals stay in hotels and the visitors stay in houses. And <laughs> that's, you know, and that's kind of what we're, what you're seeing across the country now or across the Western slope. So we need to build more, no doubt about it. Uh, there's a lot of difficulty in the modern mountain town political atmosphere with building. And one of the biggest conflicts we're seeing right now is in the town of Vail, where Vail Resorts wanted to take a few acres, five acres on 23 acres of land that it owns there by I-70, build 165 beds of affordable worker housing, the town of Vale said, no, that's bighorn sheep habitat. We are going to eminent domain, condemn that land. We're going to take it away. Vale, of course, is fighting it. What's going on here, Jason? Is this really about bighorn sheep or is there something bigger going on here? Um, this is a tough one um, and it's <laughs> truly an ugly situation. Um, both sides have completely valid arguments here. Vail Resorts needs housing. They have the property. They went through three years of planning with a previous council to win all the approvals to, to develop this small thing. They created a bighorn sheep management plan, promising that their five-acre development on this 23-acre parcel, which abuts the highway, would not impact um, the bighorn herd. The election came, new council came in, and that new council is more inclined to protect that herd than accommodate with housing. They've offered the company different spots in the valley um, where they could where they could build. But this is the process has progressed and it's along. And Vale is ready to pretty much break ground right now and have those homes ready, those beds ready by you know fall next year. That's not likely anymore because of these delays. But last week, Vale Resorts sued the town of Vale and filed a legal complaint. It's not necessarily a lawsuit, but filed a complaint in Eagle County District Court asking the court to suspend an emergency ordinance that the town approved in August that uh, prevented the, uh, the company from securing any more permits on that property, basically stalling out all construction on that property. So yes, this is about Bighorn. That council 100% supports the Bighorn herd. And you know, they're in their heart of hearts, they are working to protect the bighorn. Many of the opponents on the ground happen to live next door to that parcel, which would kind of qualify them at first glance as NIMBYs. But of course, no one ever confesses to being a NIMBY. So, <laughs> um, you know, it is in their backyard and they do not want it there, but they also want to 
keep protecting bighorn sheep in the valley. And those bighorn have been here longer than us. And this is their winter habitat. They unquestionably come down in the winter and spend their winters in this in, in this sacred dreidel on the highway there. Um, so yeah, that's a tough one. And there's really, you know, both sides are really digging their heels in. And, you know, my last uh, kind of column in my newsletter, I wrote that this thing is kind of starting to have hints of the Telluride Valley floor. Um, that's another issue that I covered in the in the 90s as a developer, I had some 500 plus, almost 600 acres of on the valley floor coming into Telluride for development. He wanted a village. He wanted ski lifts and condos and all that stuff. Uh, people in the town said, no, that's our super pastoral gateway that sets people up for you know, our cool mining town. And we don't want a new village. You just built one up on the mesa there in Mountain Village, right? Whatever. Go sell places up there. And the developer dug in for their heels. He said, this place is worth $50 million. Town said, ha, barely worth 20. Don't tell me that. The town ended up, this went to Supreme Court, town ended up paying $50 million for those acres. <laughs> um, wow. Think of all the housing that you could have built for $50 million um, in, the, right. in the early 2000s. So, you know, that was a crazy scenario. And this one is lining up to follow that track. Could this fight go all the way to the Supreme Court? Could the town of Vail end up having a public fundraising campaign with, you know, rich residents giving money to support this sheep habitat? You know, will it, will it go that far? You know, with the complaint filed last week, it certainly appears as though this is going to be a protracted legal battle that will end up costing the town millions and millions of dollars if they buy it from Bell Resorts. And the end result is no more new housing. <laughs> so it's, you know, the true losers on this are the people in this town that need a place to sleep and live and in that town. So it's a tough one. And it's truly, it's a shame to see it coming down like this. Both sides have completely valid arguments and there's really no right or wrong. And it's just truly, it's pretty sad to see how this is unfolding. And I really hope it doesn't turn into a Telluride Valley floor, which was, you know, 10 years of legal wrangling, huge million dollar end up settlement and eventually going all the way to Supreme Court. It was not pretty, but that valley floor is incredibly beautiful and well protected right now. So that um, Tyrod got what it wanted in the end, um, and they're still grappling with affordable housing issues. You know, from across the country, it's it's hard not to view this as a NIMBY situation. When you look at the amount of development already in that bighorn sheep habitat, the amount of single family home development. How much of this, Jason, do you think is is a, a council that feels like Vail Resorts is pushing them around, using whatever levers they have to push back against a company that they don't think has been listening to their needs for, you know, going back several decades? Uh, you know, these company towns have always had contentious relationships. This is century old you know, scenario, or we could go centuries if you go back to the serfdoms of, of Europe. There is always a contention between Vail Resorts and its communities. It's something that we are seeing kind of pop up all over its really empire right now. It's across North America. Really having an upswell of locals on the ground, and some of them are finding their ways into public elected office and truly fighting the big employer and 
trying to see what they can lever more out of them. Uh, vale and Breckenridge have lift taxes now that the only two in the country that sort of squeeze some money out of that company to uh, pay for parking and other infrastructure impacts. Um, vale Resorts is directing tens of millions of dollars toward affordable housing, but that process is incredibly slow, incredibly slow, as you can imagine. Winning approvals for density in mountain valleys where land is, you know, scarce and empty land and, you know, highly treasured is, uh, it's just super difficult. They, even the way down Valley, it just takes years to win approvals for this. And the developers are, they're, you know, developer, why would a developer get into the business of affordable housing building when they could go build a mansion in the woods for one owner? Sure. That one owner might be picky, but you know, they'll make, all their millions on this one mansion in the hills versus going to town council meetings. You know, I'm talking to a developer here in the Vale area who his kids were getting made fun of in school and heckled and whatever, bullied because he was the evil developer who was going to build an apartment complex in Avon. And he's like, why do I want to do this? Well, like, I'm never going to do this again. I'm going back to building mansions like this it's crazy what we you know how we've sort of vilified density when density is exactly what we need in these mountain communities it's just finding the location for it and it's hard you know you do want to protect the culture of these mountain towns and the reasons that we moved here but we also have to accommodate the market forces that have driven driven us to you know this point to where it is simply impossible for even your local doctor to afford a home in these valleys. So we're quickly moving to a situation where we have two markets, you know, a free market and a secondary market for locals, sort of a locals housing market with deed restricted housing or some sort of subsidized housing that allows locals to live in the communities where they work. There's no quick answer, but that is the track that we are on where we are going to have two different communities. Um, And yes, NIMBYs are a huge problem um you know it's it's amazing how much power they have without ever having identified one ever in the history of nimbyism <laughs> right <laughs> like they're, they're they don't exist there is no nimby <laughs> but apparent but they have incredible power across you know it's like this invisible force because no one is ever a nimby never right. confessed to being a nimby but they are blocking projects left and right across the high country. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's just, it's incredible the power they have and, you know, what they're doing. In Glenwood Springs, this guy came in for this parcel that is zoned industrial. And the only thing it can be is an Amazon warehouse. <laughs> and it's next door to a broke down mall. And he's like, I will take over that warehouse space. I will build this community. And I'll and I'll redevelop that mall into you know housing and you know some sort of commercial operation and uh, you know a little bit of everything and it got turned down um, wow. with a very well orchestrated effort from the community live next door to it so that will be an Amazon warehouse it's what they're going to get so you know and those folks aren't nimbies oh no 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 <laughs> don't ever want to call them that um, but you know you're just it's incredible. The power of NIMBYs without ever having one in existence, (laughs) 
it's really <laughs> impressive in the Colorado high country. <laughs> well, I know if there was one, you would have smoked a mile. I, I mean, housing is just one of the problems that Vail Resorts is facing. They did not have a great 2021 to 22 ski season. Financially, they did. The numbers are good. They'll tell you the education wasn't yeah, up. Yeah, oh yeah. But, you know, there were a lot of problems with crowding and labor shortages. Vail's announced a number of changes, an increase in the employee minimum wage to $20 an hour. They are limiting lift ticket sales every day of the season at every resort across the country. Is that going to be enough, Jason, to prevent Vail from having a repeat of last ski season and helping to finally offer something more resembling a normal ski experience? Um, I think so. Uh, you know, I really think that this double down and refocus on their employees is, is significant. I mean, they're, you know, we're looking at 25 to 50% pay raises for a lot of people and in, um, in, inside their company. So it's a significant pay increase. You know, I've always said, again, and I haven't seen them really do this as well as they should, but they need to focus on the folks that live in the Valley already. Um, if there's any way they could get these moms and dads, or just anybody who happens to have weekends free to spend a weekend a month working at the ski area, they don't have to, these folks have housing, so they don't necessarily have to work with them. Aston's doing an incredible job of it. Fair Resorts needs to do a better job of that um, instead of the idea that they're going to J1 their way out of this problem and bring, you know, Argentinians and Brazilians and South America, South Americans and uh, Australians are going to save them. Um, they, they really need to get more people who already live in their, their county to spend a weekend or one day a week or one day a month doing anything. And that, you know, that's would be a great way for them to buoy themselves out of this labor crisis, but they're not just doing, you know, sort of superficial offerings to employees. This is a, a very significant investment in their employee base and one that's probably overdue and one they probably should have done a couple of years ago that would maybe would have helped them avoid some of the labor problems they had last year. But there, yeah, I would suggest that this um, investment that they're doing right now is significant, and Wall Street seems to be approving um, of their of, of their moves. They, again, they had their best financial year ever last year, despite hands down the worst PR that companies ever had. Like they just were consistently beat up from you know late December when. The Colorado Sun wrote a story about lift lines and, you know, you know, angry skiers there, you know, there were stories all over the world about rail resorts, um, labor struggles. So I think they, they responded quickly, decisively. I hope it works. Um, you know, I remember last year at this time I was calling their corporate office saying, I don't think you guys are aware of the labor crisis you have on your hands right now. We have businesses that can't hire two people. Then they're shutting down restaurants that are like, we are shutting down three days a week because we are, we, we can't find two people to staff our counter. It's a deli or something, you know? And I'm like, and you need to hire 2000 people. Like, I, I don't think you're really aware of the, shit show that's on the horizon for you guys and they're like oh we're going to be fine we're you should see our you know hiring fairs program and you know i'm like you, you're not going to get there with that like you 
we you can't find a person to do anything in these communities at the end of last summer. So that came around to bite them on the ass, like hard. And they lost, you know, we saw, and it was all over the West, really. Stevens Pass, Park City, uh, South Lake Tahoe, North Lake Tahoe, um, really all over Colorado too. So, I mean, it, it, it was painful and it was hard to watch. And it was, I wish they had seen that better but they didn't. And while they maybe didn't react as well as they should have last fall, they did react very clearly in the spring. And this, you know, this new pay is significant. And I think in a lot of towns now, you know, 20 bucks an hour is, you know, people are going to say like, heck yeah, I'm going to go work for them. They're paying way more, you know, and I get 40% off at Patagonia now. And uh, there's like, there's a lot of real good perks and deals and human resources support so really hope that uh you know one we're kind of done with the you know ill-timed uh revival of these pandemic stuff this covid stuff that hit them right in the holidays last year and two you know they were gonna have maybe more predictable and uh, steady flow of traffic instead of these um kind of surges that we saw during the pandemic shutdown and then Three, the pay and the, all the perks will definitely draw more folks. So I think there's, you know, a number of things that are lining up for them to not have a repeat of last year in terms of their bad PR, hopefully. They should be able to get the employees back. There's another storyline that's brewing slowly in slow motion in the background, Jason, and that's Vale's inability to keep independent partners on the Epic Pass. We saw Arapahoe Basin leave in 2019. Snow Basin sure. and Sun Valley jumped over to the Icon Pass and Mountain Collective this year. Well, back to the Mountain Collective. I'm hearing a lot of rumors about Telluride. You're probably way more plugged in than I am that they will be leaving the Epic Pass next. I, I can't confirm that, but it's out there. Why is Vale having so much trouble hanging on to partners? And if you look at Altera going into season five of the Icon Pass, they have not lost a single partner. I had Rusty Gregory on the podcast a few months ago. He said he's very proud of that fact. That is the thing he cares about more than anything. Why is Vale having so much trouble here? And what is Altera doing right? You know, that's like the biggest and most protected secret in the world is how much Altera and Vale Resorts pay their partners for every lift ticket scan. <laughs> um, right. Uh, you know, that, that number varies widely. And it's safe to say that the operators at Arapaho Basin, when they saw their number as one mm -hmm. of the first ever independent partners on the Epic Pass, compared to some of those late arrival partner numbers, mm -hmm. um, they grew a little <laughs> discouraged. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I think it, a lot of it revolves around that number. Um, and that is, again, a very well-protected number, probably the most well-protected number in the entire ski industry. Um, Telluride's number is high. And so they, while... I think the reservation program that Altera has with the icon has, has enabled them to, you know, Jackson hole has required reservations, the Epic pass. They don't really want you. The Epic pass holders, Vail resorts doesn't like to see its partners require reservations as much as um, what Altera does with its icon. So that, that has eased that pain of the uncertainty of that traffic. But yeah, you know, I'm, I'm hearing the same things at Telluride. Telluride, what was it, last year started saying that you still got, you got to pay 50 bucks. It used to be just 10 free days. Now it's 10 days with, uh, or four to seven days with for $50. So 
costs a little more money. I don't know. I think it's going to be that was employee pass. The Epic employee pass costs money. So the Epic full Epic is still free at the time. But it's, you know, they're starting to do these kind of minor tweaks and adjustments. But I think I would imagine that maybe after Snow Basin and Sun Valley spend their time with Icon, they'll probably sit back and say, okay, you know, we tried them both. What what yeah. works best for us? You know, there's a lot of really hard politics and inside these things and relationship stuff to where, you know, there's owners of resorts that don't like rail resorts, owners of resorts that, you know, maybe do like Rusty and Altera. Um, so, you know, a lot of that plays into it too, I think. Um, but at the same time, you know, the independent partners are a huge component for Altera. They, they just have to be, you know, because um, rail resorts owns a lot more resorts and to be competitive, Altera needs those independent partners, arguably more than Vail Resorts needs an independent partner. So that might be playing into it a little bit too. But at the same time, Vail Resorts would rather buy a resort than you know partner with it. Um, Altera maybe isn't in that kind of position. They might be uh, when when Altera goes public, which is um, a matter of when, not if, um, and that will maybe change their their whole game. You know, Altera has a lot of leeway and ways to look good as they're privately held. We don't know what their numbers look like. We don't know what their bottom line looks like. Whereas we know everything about rail resorts, most everything. We have pretty good glimpse of how how they perform financially. So I think Altera has a lot of room to negotiate and you know maybe with a long-term plan of going public, a willingness to maybe not be, you know, incredibly profitable in these first five to 10 years of operation. Um, so I think it, it, it's hard to compare, you know, what Altera is doing right with what Vail Resorts is doing wrong when one is privately held and one is publicly held. Those are two very different operating tracks. And it's, you know, I think Altera has a lot of room to move that Vail Resorts doesn't have. So that's, you know, you have to take this into consideration when you think about them. You know, I don't want to come off as some sort of, you know, Vail Resorts apologist or something like that, but they don't, they just have to operate on a much tighter leash than Altera. And we don't know what Altera can do. Maybe Altera is willing to lose money on every lift ticket scan for the icon. Because it's just on the bottom line, it translates better, you know, scale of efficiency and it makes them, you know, it's on, it's part of their growth trajectory to lose money for these first few years until they, you know, can go public and start buying new resorts instead of just partnering with them. Um, that's not something the Epic Pass necessarily, Bell Resorts necessarily can do. So I think that might be, might play into it. Um, and again, the, you know, relationship type stuff, Bell Resorts is, um, you know, they're a very big operation. They have maybe not made a lot of friends in the industry and, you know, sort of created some some difficult relationships there with owners who are saying, I will never, ever partner with Vail Resorts. And there are owners of resorts out there that will say that and they will do it even if it costs them money. So I think, you know, there's there's a number of different sort of forces at play and there, but the major one is the fact that Air Resorts is publicly held, and Altera has more room to operate. You know, sort of behind the curtains, uh, that will change when that company goes public, and we will be 
seeing the two companies. And I think that will be a much more level playing field and you can truly see where resort companies are doing well and which one is maybe struggling. Altera's got a great business model and I think they have proven that there is lots of room in this industry for you know two major competitors and especially their sort of decentralized approach versus Vail Resort centralized approach is um you know I think that's one that we'll find out soon enough when the company goes public how how well uh, well that all plays out two more quick things for you here Jason I do want to let you go but I wanted to get your reaction I saw that Vail and Beaver Creek peak day walk up lift ticket hit $275 for the coming ski season steamboat is sitting wow. at 269 where it was last year what is your reaction to this and does it even matter anymore I don't think it matters anymore um you know Vail Resorts again is driven with this overarching mission to drive people to their epic pass the epic pass is their financial future and it's how they it, it's the cornerstone of their whole financial plan the more people that buy that pass the better how do you get people to buy that pass you charge them 275 dollars to get seen for a day that is ridiculous there is no unless there's a helicopter involved or a snowcat there's no way that is worth it no way right. at all. So I don't understand that people, I'm still shocked that there's like 40% of their lift revenue comes from people who walk up and buy lift tickets. Like who, who does that? Right. <laughs> who is the person that is like, okay, here's my credit card for four lift tickets today for my family. And you're like, wow, man, you are not paying attention. You should be <laughs> buying a pass. Why would you buy a pass? Um, yeah. So, you know, they, they're really punishing people who are not planning ahead. And that was, that's what they want. That's the answer to crowding. That is the answer to just about all the woes that are plaguing the resort industry right now is if they could get more people to plan ahead. Um, you know, the airline industry does it when they launched the Epic Pass you know, years ago and, and the daily lift ticket went over a hundred dollars. You know, the folks at Vail Resorts were like, you don't walk up to the ticket counter at the airport and buy your <laughs> ticket. You call ahead and you plan ahead. You shop for that ticket and you maybe even plan your travel around those prices. So, uh, you know, that's kind of what they've done with that. You know, you can buy an Epic day pass now ahead of time if you just, you know, plan it. So, you know, it's something I've, said for uh, you know years what does a poor planner say skiing is expensive <laughs> because it is if you don't plan ahead you're gonna pay big and they're gonna it's gonna cost you and that is by design that is perfectly written by the resort companies to be that way all right, Jason, last question for you here. Epic and Icon fighting it out. A lot of commentary that this would be bad for small ski areas would kill them. You wrote a really good article in April showing that Echo, Loveland, Monarch, Powderhorn, Granby Ranch, Silverton, Wolf Creek, A-Basin, basically all the big indies in Colorado had posted record revenue and or skier visits. Even though they are surrounded by Epic and Icon Mountains, what is behind this performance? Why are we seeing independent ski areas thrive even as Epic and Icon passes get more expansive and in some cases cheaper like Epic did last year? Um, yeah, no, this is going to be a great thing to watch. And, you know, fingers really crossed that this can be a sustainable trend that's coming out of the pandemic. 
Um, you know, the pandemic obviously was the catalyst for that growth as, you know, the past few years, we've seen some sort of restrictions and reservations and different, you know, sort of controlling things and higher price parking at a lot of these major resorts. Um, so it's no surprise that people thought, oh, well, hey, let's go, you know, to Ski Sunlight or Wolf Creek or Loveland or Rapo Basin, some of these smaller um, indie ski areas. So really hope this continues, but it's not that surprising to see this sort of, you know, as, you know, these big guys, you know, clash and, you know, they price their lift tickets at $275. You got to be kidding me. It's no wonder that, you know, people who are, hey, let's go skiing this weekend. They're not choosing to go to a place that's 275 bucks for a lift ticket. They're picking your, you know, Echo, A-Basin, Powderhorns, Grambys, Silverton, Wolf Creek, all the little guy monarchs. Um, and because the walk-up price is much different at those um, spots, you know, you can get three packs for 99 bucks and kids passes for 20 bucks. It just makes a lot of sense that there's, these smaller ski hills um, are, are sort of increasing in their appeal. Um, and we're going to, I have to say that we are going to continue to see that. It's, um, you know, that as these day prices grow, um, you know, the small, the small skiers have found a way to sort of capitalize on some of the corporate strategies you're seeing coming out of Altera and Bell Resorts. And that's, that's a good thing. I mean, I think it's good for all of skiing, right? We're starting to see strength and, you know, this is the the revenue of these uh, day ticket buyers at these smaller ski areas are supporting new chairlifts and upgrades and all sorts of things. So, if if this can continue, it's just a better thing for all of uh, for all of skiing, truly. All right, Jason. With that, I will thank you very much for your time today. Just tremendous insight. You are the best in the business, no doubt about it. And I cannot thank you enough for spending the time with me today and breaking all that down for us. So. I, uh, I thank you very much, and I hope to meet you in Colorado someday. Maybe you can show me around uh, show me around Vail Mountain a little bit and some stuff I haven't seen before. For sure. Let's do it, Stuart. It's great. It was a great chat. Appreciate it. That's Jason Blevins, High Country Reporter for the Colorado Sun. Okay. I know a lot of you are skeptical of the media. You think there's some hidden agenda out there where, quote, the media, unquote, is out to do the work of some invisible elite. But the truth is that most reporters are just individuals who care about the truth and are seeking it in a methodical, thorough way. Levins and The Sun represent the best of that spirit, and they are going a long way toward showing us a sustainable way for good journalism to exist in modern America. Your alternative, after all, is Facebook and a bunch of knuckleheads who are very sure of themselves because their uncle's girlfriend's cousin heard someone say something on a chairlift. In this era in which everyone has a megaphone, the work of great reporters like Levins and his colleagues is more important than ever and well worth supporting. Okay, tons of great pods ahead. In this order, subject, as always, to change. The leaders of Brundage, Nubsnob, Sun Valley, Winter Park, Bromley, Monarch, Sundance, Boyne Resorts, and Vale Mountain, and many more after that. I already have several podcasts booked for early 2023, including with the leaders of Mount Spokane, Washington, Whitefish, Montana, Eagle Crest, Alaska, Seven Springs, Pennsylvania, 
and three more that I just booked this week. Holiday Valley, New York, Saddleback, Maine, and Pacific Group Resorts, which of course is the outfit that just won the bid to purchase Jay Peak and owns Mount Washington Alpine in British Columbia, Outer Horn in Colorado, Wintergreen in Virginia, Wisp in Maryland, and Ragged Mountain in New Hampshire. All right, make sure you get those episodes the moment they are live by signing up for the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter and paid subscribers receive podcasts three days before everyone else, along with thousands of words of extra written content every single month. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Stormski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.